Bible reading this morning is going to come from the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to bring that reading to you just now. <clears throat> as we read God's word, as we hear God's word, may he enable us to be uh, the recipients of it, to hear it, to receive it, and to be shaped by it. The book of Ecclesiastes, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. <clears throat> Good luck, Brendan, in bringing hope out of this one. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. But the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. <clears throat> what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generation and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. I, the teacher, was king over, over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all of the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to, un to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with such... With, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. May God help us to understand his word. Amen. Thanks, boss. Hi, everyone. You know me. I'm Pastor Brennan. And as always, I am like not even as a joke, most delighted when we encounter the most challenging passages and the ones that are kind of the hardest to chew on. So I was really happy when Daryl gave me the first one of these. So. How about that, eh? A little bit of a light message for a Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to explore the book of Ecclesiastes together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, even the hard parts. Uh, we pray that you open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say to us. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, Amen. So when you're dealing with ancient literature, uh, anything like 2,000 years and kind of beyond that even, um, anything that, that old, you have a couple of different genres you're dealing with. They have genres just like we do, right? Um, apocalyptic is a kind of a genre of ancient literature. That's what revelation is. It's apocalyptic literature. That's fire, judgment, end of world, that kind of arrangement. Um, if you're 
Uh, ever heard of the Odyssey or the Iliad, these sort of ancient epic poems? They're epics is the, the genre that they are, and those are stories of uh, grand adventures involving gods and journeys and wars and that kind of thing. Um, wisdom literature is a little bit heavier, and that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Wisdom literature are these sort of ancient works of thought and philosophy. Uh, they're parables or stories or essays about life and the world and how men and women should live. The book of Proverbs... Um, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, however you like to, to name that one, a book of Job and Ecclesiastes are all examples of wisdom literature. And within wisdom literature, there is a subgenre uh, cheerfully titled pessimism literature. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is an example of what is called pessimism literature uh, to the scholars. Pessimism literature is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, the theme is life seems pointless. What are we supposed to do about that? Uh, the book of Job is not quite pessimism literature. The book of Job has a different sort of theme. Job asks, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is that happening to me? Uh, that's one question and worth asking, and Job asks it. Ecclesiastes is almost the opposite. This is Solomon basically saying, I've lived a pretty good life. I've tried all the good stuff there is to try, and what now? Life still seems kind of pointless. I'm still going to die and pass away. What, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, that's a question philosophers have been asking for as long as they've been capable of speaking about things like this. Uh, Solomon wrote this about 3,000 years ago. About 4,000 years ago, one of the 1,000 years before Solomon uh, would even come on the scene, there was a nameless Egyptian writer uh, who wrote on a papyrus scroll, which is later on been titled by the people who discovered it and translated it, The Man Who Was Tired of Life, uh, which is a very explanatory title, and I don't expect anything other than that in the story. But uh, in The Man Who Was Tired of Life, that Egyptian writer argues back and forth in a discussion with his own soul about whether or not living or suicide is the best option in this brief passing world. You spend your life trying to create wealth, you don't get to keep it, um, the only thing you can't get back is the life you spend to get all this passing stuff. And then you die, and never again will a man see the sun, this Egyptian writer says. His conclusion is, follow the happy day and forget your care. Follow the happy day and forget your care. Or take the happiness that's in front of you and try not to worry too much about the things you can't control. And that's really not too different to the common wisdom today confronting the same question. Live for the moment, life's too short for worry. So in that span of 4,000 years, uh, secular thought, trying to approach this idea, hasn't really gotten anywhere. Uh, ultimately comes down to, well, yep, life ends, so enjoy it while you have it. That's kind of a depressing conclusion. But the book of Ecclesiastes, in this book, uh, a thousand years after that Egyptian pessimist uh, wondered darkly about the value of life, Solomon asks the same question. And at the end of chapter 12, at the very end of the book, uh, his last two verses conclude his thoughts, and they sound like this. He says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon's conclusion is that obedience to God is the primary duty of all mankind. That's the primary feature of the life that we live. And that sort of flies in the face of both the more ancient and more modern attempts to answer this question. 
What matters is how we live before God because our life is woven together from our deeds, not from our treasure, not from our, uh, the wisdom that we accumulate, not from how widely we sample the, the joys of the world. Uh, ultimately, we'll be judged by God for the things we have done. Now, that's not all that Solomon has to say on the matter. Over the next couple of weeks, over the next several weeks, we will see the, the full spread of his inspired wisdom on this topic. Uh, and as we engage with the book, there is a, a few interesting things which are really important, even if they're not immediately apparent, and I want to go over those. Um, the first is that Solomon, King Solomon, writing this book, the son of David, uh, he makes surprisingly few references to God throughout this book. So don't be shocked uh, when that happens. It's not quite like the book of Esther where there's no direct mention of God at all. Um, but Solomon is trying to keep his wisdom extremely sort of grounded and kind of like an earth's eye view. Uh, he doesn't beg the reader to look at their life through the eyes of heaven. Um, earthly eyes are the only ones he has access to. They're the ones he is encouraging the reader to use. Um, this doesn't mean that he didn't have some kind of heavenly insight or anything, but rather that's the perspective he is operating from for the writing. Uh, he speaks, when he speaks of God, he, he speaks kind of more generally uh, of the way that God has made life this burden on man, um, the fact that God has established limitations for the life of man. He's not writing in a resentful tone, but it is kind of stark to read Ecclesiastes next to, say, a run of Psalms full of this high-flying adoration and appreciation for the Lord's heavenly aspects and all that he does and how great and powerful he is. Ecclesiastes is written for men and women whose sense of God is distant or weak or very new, um, not just those carried up to the highest heaven, sort of surging on the, the height of their faith. Ecclesiastes does not tell the full arc of the gospel. It's not preoccupied with the spiritual problems like sin, damnation, and your need for a savior. If you could give your friend only one book from the Bible in a moment of their distress, Ecclesiastes should not be that book. Uh, the wisdom of Solomon in these words is not that it presents the truth of the Savior that we need and why we need him, rather it, uh, it's in how he dismantles the alternatives, uh, any alternative that the world may present as the meaning for life or something that should make it worthwhile. It's pre-gospel wisdom that is made all the more perfect with gospel retrospect. And one more thing to note here is that Solomon on the occasion that he refers to God, he never actually calls him in this book. He never calls him the Lord. He never uses uh, the, the sacred name that, um, that the Israelites were given as part of their covenant, the name that was given to, to Moses. Um, he never uses the sacred name for God, which comes from that special covenant the Israelites have with God. He uses a more generic term. He uses Elohim, which uh, is less like a name and much more like our English word, God that kind of broader sense of the word. Anyone, a Israelite or a Gentile, who heard that word, or who at least understood the language, would have an idea of what they refer to, whether their understanding of God was as sophisticated as the Jewish tradition, or if it was colored by a sort of a pagan religious drift. They still had a sense that there was the God over everything who made the world. And that's what Solomon uses for the broadest communication he can. Solomon doesn't want to have a wall of understanding between Israelites reading this and pagans reading this. He's writing as a respected wise man among the nations, not just for Israel. And some people theorize that uh, Ecclesiastes, 
that this book is like the transcription of a, like a wisdom conference, like a presentation given to other kings and wise men. Uh, since scripture tells us that that kind of thing happened for Solomon, that people would come from all over to learn from him. And that picture seems like it might well be spot on to me. Oh, and one more, one more thing. Um, the most repeated word in this book, uh, you might have guessed based on just the chapter we read, uh, is meaningless uh, or, or vanity. Um, it's variously translated. The Hebrew word is havel. Uh, you don't really need to know that, but that translates as meaningless or vanity or kind of pointless in various translations. That's not the same as it has no temporary value. That's not quite what the word is trying to communicate. Uh, in in uh, chapter 2, Solomon is going to say that pleasure is meaningless. Uh, all the fun or pleasing, indulgent things in the world are meaningless vanity. And you might have an instinct to hear that and say, I don't know, I can think of a few things. But when Solomon says that wine is meaningless, he's not saying that it doesn't taste good or that it doesn't do the things that wine does the way that wine is supposed to. Uh, the word havel means a breath a vapor, something that is there and then gone. You don't get to hang on to it. You don't get to bottle it. When you breathe that little visible breath of cold on a, of, a, of air on a cold day, you see it and then whoosh, gone. There's no catching it. There's no retaining it. It's brief. It's passing. It's over. It's vanity. It's meaningless in that sense. And with that, let's step through this chapter, starting with the first section in which the NIV cheerfully titles, Everything is Meaningless. Verse 1, the words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, a small note, he could have easily have led with the fact that he was a king. That seems like that might be the most intuitive way to begin a letter that you want people to respect you for. I'm a king, listen to what I'm saying. He chooses to lead with the fact that he is a teacher. Some verses say preacher, but the point is he has something that's important for people to understand. and He's not leading on his authority as king for people to understand it, though he doesn't neglect to throw it in at the end there. Uh, the fact that he is teaching has the highest billing in his introduction. And it's a little interesting, the fact that he is called the king in Jerusalem rather than king of Israel, which you might have expected, a much more common way of talking about the king of Israel. Uh, but this seems to be more of the way that Solomon is trying to break down the barrier for teaching between Israelite and Gentile here, instead of calling himself the king of Israel, Israel being those 12 tribes descended from Israel, um, descended from the man Israel, which traveling nation or traveling um, people from, um, from far nations who have traveled to, to Israel, uh, to that area, to Jerusalem, might not quite know that much about. Distant readers who will get a copy of this may not know very much about that people group to which Israel refers. They understand empires, they understand a city. Uh, and the city's name is Jerusalem. Ancient kingdoms weren't countries with borders and then a capital city somewhere in the middle of it like we're kind of used to now. Uh, ancient kingdoms were a city, your Jerusalem, your Rome, your Babylon, and then their kingdom was however far from the walls of that city they could project their power and hold on to influence. So the king in Jerusalem is kind of a more world-friendly way of identifying Solomon's royal position. Now, whether the idea of the kingdom being uh, the, the power projection from a city is uh, something that should impact the way we think about the kingdom of God, I'll let you think about that on your own. We'll talk about that some other time. Verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything 
is meaningless. Tell it like it is, why don't you? Uh, It's a deliberately provocative start to declare one's kingly title and then declare that everything is meaningless. I, the king in Jerusalem, say that nothing matters. Why should we care we have to say that? Uh, But Solomon's going for that shock value. Uh, in that shock and awe direction. Verses three and four. Why do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. It's kind of a hard truth, uh, an earthly perspective. You work, you pass uh, that work to the next generation, and then you die. Uh, Nothing fundamentally changes, so work seems to be pointless and in vain from that perspective. Verses five to seven. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns north and round and round it goes, everything returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from. They never return again. Solomon remarks on these natural cycles and he despairs of the changeless nature of things. Uh, This is a more important idea than it might initially seem. It's kind of a philosophical turning point uh, for those who grasp it, particularly in those ancient times. And what I mean is, uh, the closer to nature one lives, or one's society, one's tribe is, the more aware of those cyclical patterns of the world one tends to be. Uh, And so tribes that live off the land or who wandered like nomads, like the Israelites once did, they're kind of rooted in the idea that the world goes on and on and on and on and on like that. The idea that the world had a beginning becomes this sort of vague, mystic thing without a a strong sense of reality to it. It becomes hard to imagine the world was anything other than what it is because it goes on and on and on and on like it always has. Uh, It's sort of related to the way that our Aboriginal brothers and sisters have this idea of the dream time because for thousands of years, generation after generation, they had the same traditions, the same stories, the same way of life. There was no sense that the world was going to some particular destination uh, or that the idea that the world, or and the idea that the world was once different to the way that it is, is this kind of dreamy, mythical thing that's hard to grasp and to think of in real terms. It's also part of why it was so traumatic to then have another nation suddenly turn up with unstoppable force and change the world away from what it had been like for thousands of years, generations and generations. But those are really only your two choices of how to look at the world. It's either this looping cycle, sunrise, sunset, nothing really changes. We can't imagine it being any other way. Or it's something else. It's a world that started one way and it's moving to some kind of end goal, one destination, start to finish. Or it's a cycle, one of those two. And one of those leads to the ultimate vanity, the ultimate meaninglessness, the one that Solomon's tapping into here because nothing changes, nothing matters. Uh, goes around in cycles, starts again where it was before. The other thing, starting from one location and going to another location, beginning at one and then ending another way, leads to the ultimate fear that everything that you do actually matters because one day you'll be judged by God when the world gets to the final place that it's going. It's not like you can get away with doing things as if they don't matter. If the world is going somewhere, If it's going to God's judgment, then everything matters. And that's quite frightening. 
You can read and feel Solomon moving from the, uh, one of these positions to the other through this book. Uh, for all his wisdom, Solomon has only glimpsed the final destination of the world. And after him are going to come these prophets um, in the great Hebrew tradition of prophets who would start seeing and prophesying about that final day, uh, the, the day the, when the ultimate judgment comes, when the nations will be changed, rearranged, brought into alignment with God, there will be a harmony like the world has never known, that the world will reach that state it is going to. But right now, we're still wallowing in this first stage, grasping at the meaninglessness of a world that seems to never change. Verses 8 and 9. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye has never had enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun, like probably the most like enduring phrase that's come out of this book that sort of slips into our common parlance. Uh, it's a phrase Solomon uses. It echoes that old Egyptian story, the man who was tired of living, where the writer complains about um, death after which a man will never again see the sun. It's this sort of common ancient world um, reminder, this shared idea that uh, the alternative to being under the sun is being under the ground. Um, you die, you're buried, you're put in a hole, you're put in a cave with your ancestors' bones, sealed up, no more sun for you. Whatever the dead have, it's not sunshine. And Solomon is saying people have been trying to discover something meaningful to do with their life, something that changes the game for thousands of years, and it doesn't exist, not within human capacity. There is nothing new under the sun. It's just the same old song. Verses 10 to 11. Solomon goes on. He says, Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Now, plenty of, uh, of modern comedians have observed by now how funny it is that today you might have a single yellowed old photograph of your great-grandparents on their lettuce farm, um, and that's all the connection you have to them. And a hundred years from now, kids will have access to the archives of their great-grandparents' Instagram stories and Facebook, and they'll have eight million pitch, um, pictures detailing every event of their life, from birth to graduation to every plate of Eggs Benedict they thought they should immortalize in photography. But everyone in this room, and watching online for that matter, has eight great-grandparents. Many of us can name one of them. Some can probably name two. I bet there are a few who can name four, but I doubt anyone knows all eight. And if they do know, they won't know the 16 great-great-grandparents in the layer above that. And even if you have a family tree mapped out, you've gone to Ancestry.com or whatever, and you have all those names um, rolled out before you, you will never know them meaningfully. Relationship, knowing someone, is a function of life. And the idea that we can leave behind a legacy or a mark on the world and be remembered through that is sort of a uh, romantic attempt to dodge the fact that death still has that set of teeth. And it does have that set of teeth. We have Solomon's wisdom here. In a sense, he's contributing to the world long past his death. But I can't say I know Solomon or that I love Solomon other than I love the way he writes or something like that. 
And if I were to write a book as meaningful and as powerful and as inspired by God as Solomon's writing, it will do nothing for me in this world because I too am going to die in about 50 years or something. Let's shoot higher, let's say 60. Um, But there's nothing that I can do about that. Solomon goes on in verses 12 to 15 in the second part of this chapter, which the NIV titles, Wisdom is Meaningless. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. So for all his wisdom, for all that blessing, explicit blessing of great wisdom that God gave to Solomon, uh, for all of that, Solomon was not able to determine anything that was new under the sun. He wasn't able to discover a way to approach life and escape this fundamental terrible truth that ultimately man lives, he does some things, he dies, and eventually he's forgotten. That's it. God didn't give him the power to fix that world, which he was able to understand with this great wisdom. For all the man's powers, he cannot unbreak what is broken. And this world is broken. That's clear to anyone who looks at it seriously. It's full of people who are born, who live these short, difficult, uh, painful sometimes lives, and then vanish again. The awareness of this seems to have driven Solomon almost mad at times. Uh, Verses 16 to 18, he says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge than I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. So with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He's looked into the words of wisdom that have been written down by others and that he's discovered himself. Uh, He's explored all the smartest, wisest avenues of thought he could find. And for good measure, just in case he missed something, he's traveled down these stupid byways and lanes as well for all they're worth and circled in the cul-de-sac of madness for a while. But it's only succeeded in making him more and more certain of how hopelessly vain it is for a man in his own strength in his own wisdom, to attempt to make the world less broken than it is. If this is what there is, birth and then struggle and then death, then the wise and the foolish and the mad all end up in the same dust at the end of the day. So ends chapter 1. As Christians, we have the privilege of knowing that there is, in fact, a hope for men and women in this world. That this world will not always be broken, And that Solomon is right that such a thing didn't exist in this world, but it had to come from heaven to earth in the form of God's son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, whose life was made spectacular by miracles that made crooked bodies straight uh, and providing the full count where the count was lacking in the food for hungry crowds or forgiveness for sinning individuals, that Jesus' final act was to die with all the full weight of sin upon him to be buried in a tomb, and then on the third day to emerge into the sun again, renewed and glorious. 
by defeating death, by promising eternal life to those who follow him. He took a meaningless world and he filled it with absolute meaning. Now it's a world that's going somewhere, not a loop from which no one ever really accomplishes anything and can never escape. Nothing ends on that eternal scale. Everything will be counted. All things will be made new. But we still live here in this world that has not fully reckoned with that truth. There are new things. There is new technology, developments, medicine, advancements. None of these qualify as new under the sun in the way that Solomon was talking about it. Solomon was warning that mankind... um, cannot produce anything that will be able to overcome this frightening certainty that death guarantees. Though mankind will not, in its desperation, stop trying. For those who don't know their Savior, there really is only a life in which to eat and drink and be merry and try not to worry about the things you can't change. Enjoy life, forget about care. Not even in a libertine sort of throwaway indulgent manner, but even in a humble enjoy things while you can sort of way. That's all that's left for those who don't know the Savior. But we have a full view, a full view of the thing of which Solomon was only permitted to glimpse. So we get to eat and drink and be merry, but also we get to do so with a superior knowledge that this life, this world, is the transitional phase from the old creation to the new. It's where we are called by God to live in obedience out of love for him and compassion for others. The truth of the world is that life is vanity. It's breath, it's here, and then it's gone. The truth that Jesus brought to the world was that life really never ends. It just leaves this world and is counted in the next. We either draw close to the God who saves us to live forever in his kingdom where everything, past, present, and future, matters and matters ultimately. Or we give up and we reject God and all of his love and accept that nothing we can do alone matters and then go on after death for an eternity distant from that creator. Nothing matters, or everything matters. The difference is drawing upon our own petty mortal wisdom up to the final point of death, or resting in the wisdom of the one that God sent, who died and rose to save us. You don't have to be the wisest person in the room to figure that one out. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you have given us life. You've given us a world full of uh, small and great pleasures and many great challenges. And the way your plan unfolds, Lord, we can see gives meaning to them all. We thank you that However brief and swift and meaningless life without you indeed is, you didn't abandon your children to perish without you. You sent your son from heaven to earth to show us the way. Help us not to get too lost in worldly things which are here and then gone without lasting meaning. Help us to walk in this world by the wisdom glimpsed by Solomon and then made whole and new by Jesus. Until the day your son comes again, 
we walk in this broken world and we strive, Lord, to fill it with the meaning and purpose with which you have filled us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.